0: (coughs) Uh, I was thinking, um, I had gone and read an article and, and a couple of reviews and different things about, uh, some of the Christian books that have been published the last 15 years or so. It goes well beyond that, but there's this, this phenomenon, uh, in Christian culture, which has been kind of dubbed the, uh, prosperity gospel. If you don't know what that is, uh, the prosperity gospel is this idea that we go to God and if we have enough faith that he will give us all the things that we desire and and it gets dubbed kind of the prosperity gospel because um, the things that get pushed that we desire and that we need that will make us happy are often uh, around physical things like uh, money and and cars and And certain houses and the next promotion or whatever it may be. And so what ends up happening a lot of times, uh, the main thought around uh, a lot of these books and this thinking and, and just this whole movement is that if you have enough faith and you just believe and, and sometimes gets added into it, uh, if you smile and you have a good attitude and you work hard, then God will bless you with all these things. And so that's kind of the way it gets, uh, packaged. Uh, sadly it's gone overseas. Uh, my brother was in, uh, Africa not too long ago and he said that where they were is overrun with prosperity gospel that's the whole thing and it's all like if you will just get Jesus then you can get all these other things and, and the problem with this and the 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 struggle with it is it sadly is it's resonated with a whole lot of people uh, I'm thinking of just even a few books I was I was looking at this week that have sold like five to ten million copies that are just kind of pushing this idea and so it's obviously resonating with a whole lot of people and and a lot of people are grabbing hold of that. But the sad part is when we start to do it, one, it's built around a lot of poor theology, some things the Bible doesn't say, doesn't tell us, and it gets twisted and distorted to kind of come out on this other end. But the biggest problem I see when I hear that and I hear people talk about it is um, this idea that if we come to God with enough faith, he will give us these other things that will satisfy us. And I want you to think about what that's saying, because it's so important, because Jesus is going to address this very directly, very uh, clearly head on today in our passage in John chapter six. But the idea is this. The, the problem is this, is that we're coming to God to use him as a means to an end to something else. So what we're saying is everything will be good if I just have this, whatever this is, a car, a house, a certain money, a certain lifestyle a certain place in the culture, whatever it is, whatever those things that we're looking for. And if I have enough faith, God will give me that thing that will satisfy me. But the problem is that's using God as a means to an end to something else that can never satisfy you. And we begin to use and seek to use Jesus as a means to something else. And that is a huge, huge problem. In fact, it's nothing new. It's what the people in Jesus' day were seeking to do with him. And we're going to see that in this passage. Where we've been is we're we're walking through the Gospels in chronological order. And we're thinking of of the kind of the movements of Jesus comes in in the first year. They don't know him really. It's kind of his year of obscurity. Year two, he becomes very, very popular. Year three, there starts to be some opposition. We are right in that transition, two to three. The end of the second year, really getting into the third year now. He's really, really popular. People are really excited about him. Uh, they're coming to him, starting to say this maybe is the Messiah, the promised one that's going to uh, save us, going to save Israel. It's going to meet our needs. And they're getting really excited about him. But the problem is they're missing the fullness of who he is. And Jesus is going to keep pushing and keep telling them you're not seeing the fullness of it. He's going to ask them to go deeper. He's going to be calling them to something more and as he does opposition starts to arise. He starts to upset the religious leaders of the day. They're starting to get frustrated with Jesus's claims of who he is and his authority. It threatens them greatly. But in our passage today we're going to see Jesus start to push the people that are actually following him and are excited and he's going to be calling them to something far deeper than the way they're looking at what he's saying. And as he does opposition starts to arise even with the people that would call themselves his followers. And it's because he's calling them to something far deeper. He's not going to allow them to use him as a means to some other end. And he's going to call them to see that he is the ends that they're looking for, that he's the center of it. And so as we look at that and as we think about that and as we come into this passage, there's a challenge uh, to, to get where the disconnect is. And that's what I want us to think about in this passage. The people are coming to Jesus and they're excited about him and this idea that he can kind of give them the good life, that he can meet their needs and we can get this guy and we can make him be our king. And then he can provide for us in a way that will help us live the good life. And Jesus is going to come along and he's going to start talking about this idea of what the, the good life is. Uh, if you think about it in our culture, we, we talk about living sometimes, right? Like if we say Uh, living, we can mean it biologically. You're living, you have breath in your lungs, you're alive, or we might say, now that's really living. And you know what I mean? Almost just without even context, right? Like if somebody says, uh, I just got a new promotion and I'm getting transferred to Hawaii and part of my job is I get to play golf every day uh, and take my clients to the golf course and I'm going to live in Hawaii and live on the beach. You go now that's living, right? And you wouldn't mean they're just alive. You would mean that's great. That sounds wonderful. You get to go to the beach. That's really living, right? But it's the same word, right? We say the same word, but context dictates what we mean. Uh, Our language is kind of funny like that. We use the same thing. But in the Greek that the New Testament is written in, there was actually a different word for life, biological life, breathing, being alive. And then the good life, living the fullness of life. And it's one of those things that we don't catch when we're reading it in English as we read through John 6. But Jesus is going to start to talk about how he's the bread of life. And he's not talking about I'm just bread that gives you biological life that you're living. But I give you the good life, the full life, the fullness of life. And he's going to use this word over and over. And he's going to say it. And it's a key to a lot of what's going on in this passage. Because the people are coming to Jesus thinking it's one thing. And he's calling them to something else and saying it's something totally different. And so what I want us to think about as we work our way through this passage and we start to think about this, what what the disconnect is, why it says at the end of this passage, we're going to get down to verse sixty six. And it's going to say, and many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And it's because he's calling them to something far deeper. He's redefining this idea of what does it mean, the good life? What does it mean to really live? And he's going to call them to something far deeper than the way they're thinking. And so here's what I want us to do as we think about this. So we think about this idea of what is living as Jesus is defining. First, I want us to consider what it's not and then what it is. And then lastly, how do we get it? What it's not, what it is, and then how do we get it? And so let's look at John chapter six and let's start with this idea of what it's not. Let me just set the scene for you. If you were with us last week, we saw. Jesus walking on the water out to his disciples as they're making headway painfully in the midst of a storm. This happens the next day. And so the in-between of those is the day before he feeds the 5,000 miraculously. People are there and they're fed and they're excited. It says at the end, if you look at the beginning of John chapter 6 and verse uh, 14, it says when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Indeed, this is the prophet who is to come into the world perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And that's where we were last week. He went up on the mountain. They went out on the water. Then he walked out to meet them. This is the next day. And so it says, John tells us that the people were so excited. They were ready to come and take Jesus by force to make him their king. And they're excited in a lot of ways because he just fed us. Right. This guy just provided for us in a miraculous way. Thousands of people and they're like this guy would make a great king. He can take care of us. He can maybe overthrow the government. He could do all these things. And they're getting really exciting. And and so they come and they find Jesus as he's gone across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And the people start to flood in and they found him there. And so we're going to pick up in verse twenty five where it says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Right. They're asking the question because they didn't see him get in the boat. But somehow he got to the other side, which John tells us he walked across the water. But that's how he got there. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal, And so Jesus comes out and he sets the tone right off the bat. He comes out swinging, so to speak. They show up and they're excited. And he says, I know why you're here. It's because you got a good meal and I provided for you. And you're real pumped about what I can give you. And now you're here to seek to get that from me. You want me to be your king? You're looking for provision. Uh, we know just culturally kind of behind a lot of this is they were waiting for the Messiah. They are under the heavy oppression of Rome. And so the idea that the Messiah will come and we will make him king and we will have a great revolt, probably wrapped up in that is not just provision, but safety. You can help us get out from under Rome. You can probably improve our taxes. Right. There's all sorts of motivations there that they're coming loaded towards Jesus with. And they're saying these things and Jesus immediately calls them out on it. And he goes, I know why you're here. You're here because you ate your fill, because you're seeing what I can temporarily give you, and you're excited about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with a people that is being oppressed by a terrible government that taxes you to 90 percent, that kills anyone that rebels against them, all the terrible things that were going on with the Roman Empire. It's not a bad desire to be out from under that. But what they're doing is they're taking Jesus and what he's come to do. And they're putting it in this neat little box of what he can give them. And they're coming to him, seeking to use him for what they can give him them temporarily. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's not why I'm here. Don't do that. Don't stop there. And he starts to try to redefine what that looks like. And so they're thinking, let's come to this guy, Jesus. Maybe he is the Messiah. We're excited because of what he can give us. And they want to use them for all these things that he could maybe do for them. And so they're starting to see this idea of of the good life for living or what this would be like, is that if you could get all these things in a row for us, you could provide for us. You could be our king. You could take care of us. We could have better taxes. We could have better whatever. Right. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to look at it that way. I don't want you to look at it as just As temporal needs, that's woefully inadequate of what I've come to do. And he starts to redefine what that looks like. And it's important for us to think about this because the truth is that's exactly what's at the heart of the prosperity gospel. It's exactly what's at the heart of what happens of oftentimes the way we operate as the church. is that we come to God so that he can give us the other things that we really want so everything will be good. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not why I've come. But we continue to do that. And I want you to think about why that's the case, why we continue to come back to that and continue to seek to fit God into that box to just fit our temporary needs and not our deepest needs. Now, there's nothing wrong with coming to God with temporary needs, your physical needs in front of you. In fact, God tells us to care for those things. He tells us to ask him. Give us this day our daily bread. He teaches us to pray that way. There's nothing wrong with seeing those things. But if that's the totality of the way we approach God, there's a problem. Or if we believe that that will fix everything, that's a problem. And what it comes down to is this idea of our felt need versus our deepest need. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. Maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never thought about that. The idea of felt need versus deepest need. What do I mean by that? deepest need that we have in our life whether we recognize it or not is to know and to love God above all else you are created in his image after his likeness to love him and then to love others it's what God made you for at the very deepest part of your soul there is eternity in your heart that only God can fill that relationship with him and that's what we are created for every single person on the planet was made in God's image after his likeness to be in a relationship with him. And what has happened is when we sinned, we've ignored God, we've rebelled against him, we've decided we don't need to define ourselves by him. Sin enters the world and we begin to seek to fill that need in our life with all sorts of other things. and That's the the deceptiveness of sin, that we have this need to be loved and to be accepted, to be known. And so we go and we look for it in different ways. But none of those things that we look to fill this eternal void in our life can ever do it. And so it's a dead end, no matter how hard we try. And so when these people show up and they start to come to Jesus and they're really excited about what he can give them, he's going, no, 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 no. And I want you to, to see that it's precisely because God loves us. It's precisely because Jesus is perfect love embodied and he's like, I'm not going to allow you to use me for something that will never satisfy you. And so he begins to stop them right in their tracks as they come up. And he says, I know why you're here. You're going to speak to use me for these other things, but I'm not going to let you do that. And he starts to redefine what this looks like. What it really would mean to have the fullness of what God has created us for. And he starts to redefine the way that is. And so when we start to think about how we go off the rails on this, in our sin, we know that we need love and acceptance. We want to be known and we want to be loved. And so we seek it in all sorts of different ways. Instead of resting in who we are created to be in our relationship with God through Jesus and what he's done, we go and do it in all sorts of ways. And we do this over and over and over again. And so we seek to be satisfied by temporal things that only something eternal could ever fill. And so there's a lot of different ways we do that. I was trying to think of a good example, and, and I just happened to be watching a movie this week. And, and part of one of the things the guy said in it just kind of crystallized a lot of this for me. It's a good example. Maybe you've heard of this movie. There's a new movie called uh, Free Solo. Uh, just won an Oscar. It's a documentary. About a young man who decided to climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park uh, with no ropes or anything. If you don't know what El Capitan is, it's 3,200 feet straight up. It's like a granite rock just sitting in the middle of the mountain range. And he decided he was going to climb it with nothing. Like literally he has his shoes and his pants and a shirt and a little bag for his chalk that he puts his hands in. That's it. No ropes, no... Safety measures, if he falls, he dies. And so this guy worked on this for like 10 years, and he decides to do it, uh, and his buddies made a documentary of him doing it. And so it's uh, the intensity of this movie is it's all his friends making the movie of watching him do this, knowing that if he slips, he's going to die, and they're going to all see it. It's a pretty intense movie. Uh, spoiler, he makes it, thankfully. Uh, probably wouldn't win an Oscar if he didn't, but he makes it, and he's the only guy who's ever done it. He's the only guy that's ever climbed this mountain like this. Uh, but as I watched the movie, I kind of got into it. It was, it was real interesting to see. Uh, but there's a video that I watched yesterday or the day before. And it's a 360 degree video. You know how they have the cameras now you can turn. You can actually put your mouse on the screen and you can turn the camera where you want it to go. And it's of, right above him in the middle of the mountain. And so you can look down and you can look back and you can see what he's seeing as he's. This tiny little guy hanging on the side of the mountain and it makes your, I don't really like heights. And so just even looking at the video is like, and I like this, but there he is climbing away, but his voice is over it and he's talking about why he did this and what he was after. And he says, um, that, oh, and by the way, he 3,200 feet, he took him four hours. He climbed this thing in four hours. Right. And so they said, why would you do it like that? Why free solo that with nothing? why would you do it that way? And his answer was, he thought that doing it without any ropes, anything is perfection and rock climbing. That's as close to perfection as you can get. Cause nothing's helping you. You're out there, you're doing it on your own and you can do it. And he said, it's closest to perfection as you get. And he said, it feels really good to be perfect. Even if it's just for a moment, he said, we are totally insignificant. In this life, and so much of life, we are not good at at all. But for a few moments, as I climbed that mountain, I got to experience what perfection is. He said, even if it was just for a moment. And I listened to that guy say that. And I thought, he is desperately seeking love and acceptance by climbing a mountain. And even if it's just for a moment, I feel like I'm perfect and I matter and I've done something. And he's seeking to fill an eternal void that only God can fill by temporary means. And, the, you know, you get to the end of the movie and he's done it. They're like, can you stop chasing this now? And he's like, yeah, I guess I can. And then he's like, until maybe somebody's going to come along and do something cooler. Somebody definitely will. And then he's like, or maybe I can. Right? Like, he's never going to be satisfied in that. Right? It's this idea that I'm seeking to have a, an eternal thing that's void that I have and I'm trying to meet it with temporary means. And that's exactly what's happening here is the people come to Jesus. And he says, you're coming to me because you ate your fill. You're coming to me because you think I can give you something. And he's like, I can, but it's not what you think. It's not this temporal thing. And so what it's not, what Jesus is saying is that you cannot address your deepest need with temporal things. You can't get the fullness of everything you are created to be by something that God gives you, whether it's money or cars or the right spouse or the right house or the climbing the right mountain or whatever it is. And Jesus says, it's not that. And so then the question is, well, what is it? What does Jesus say that it is? And so pick up in verse 28. Then he said to them or they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. There's that word again. He means not just biological life, but more than that. Who gives life to the world. And they said to him, give us this bread always. And so Jesus starts to say to him, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he starts to redefine this whole thing. Now, see what they're doing. They're they're pretty smart, actually. They're coming to him wanting physical needs met. They want to eat. They want to have their fill. And they go, hey, show us the sign if you're really the guy. Right? Because Jesus says, no, this is the work. You believe in me. And they go, okay, well, we'll believe in you. But why don't you feed us? Right? They say, just like our fathers did with the manna in the wilderness. You know what he's talking about? In Exodus. When they were wandering in the wilderness and God brings down food to provide for them as they're wandering. They said, that's what God did before. Kind of like, why don't you feed us? Why don't you help us out here? And Jesus goes, yeah, but those people that ate of that died. That's great and all. But now I am the one that has come down. And he starts to point to himself and he starts to tell them it's putting your faith in me. This is the work of God to put your faith in whom and he who he has sent. Jesus is talking about himself. I'm the only one that can meet your needs. They want him to do tricks for them, Right. He says, it's me. And they go, no, no, no. Show us a sign. Do you see what's happening? They're still going. No, no, no. We want to use you for the things we really want. And he goes, no, you come to me. And he's starting to define for them what it is. And he says, I am the one that gives you the bread of life. Right. You see that in verse 33, he says the bread of. Of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And I go, yeah, yeah, OK, we want bread. And he says, no, it's me. And he says, if you come to me in verse thirty five, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus begins to use very similar language that he uses in John four. So if you're reading through John's gospel and the way he's doing that, John four is the woman at the well. You know the story. Jesus meets a woman at the well and he begins to talk to her Samaritan woman. And as they're talking, he says, I uh, in the water that you're looking for, I will satisfy your need. And it's a woman who's been married five times and she's working on number six. And what you see real clearly in that story as you start to read Jesus's interaction. is he says, what you're seeking to fill your life with in relationships, only I can meet that need. You're trying to seek it from temporal things, but I can only meet that. You're seeking it in all these other ways. And she says, well, give me this water. And he's like, no, 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 I'm the water. It's the same thing he says here. They're going to give us bread. And he's going, no, 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 I'm the bread. And he's starting to point us to the only way that we will ever be satisfied is in what Jesus does for us and nothing else. C.S. Lewis had a great quote when he said, if we find in ourselves A desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's what Jesus is trying to hone in on here. He's saying, you're trying to use me in all these different ways to give you something that you think is going to satisfy. And what I'm telling you is it's never going to satisfy you. You need me. And he starts to point them to it's his doing and what he's going to do. Now, because he's loving and because he cares for them, he's going to continue to push this. There's lots of people around that are really excited about Jesus and they're really pumped, but they're pumped for the wrong reasons. And so Jesus is not going to let them stay there. He's going to continue to push them. He's going to continue to push this analogy. Right. So he starts down this road of they're saying, give us food to eat. And he's going, I'm the bread. And he's going to continue to push this. If you look at verse 40, he says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so what he's doing is he's drawing it to the spiritual connection of who he is. This is not just food that you eat. That should be pretty clear in verse 35 when he says, if you eat this bread, me, my bread of life, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. That should alert us to something more than just physical food that we eat. But then he starts to talk about eternal life. You come to me and you will have eternal life. See, our deepest need is not food or provision or a spouse or a house or a car. Although those are good things and there's nothing wrong with those things, but they will never meet our deepest need. Our deepest need is to have a relationship with our creator and sustainer, our God that has made us. And Jesus says, I have come to give you that relationship. I have come to restore you to that relationship. And so he's going to continue to push this analogy with him. He's not going to let them stay with just what you can give us being temporal things. He's going to continue to push. And so if you look closely, look at what he does. And he starts to push and it's going to take us to how we get it. Right. So what it's not is using God for other things. What it is, is our relationship with God through Jesus and what he alone can do. It's the only thing that can satisfy, but he's going to push them on their understanding of this. And so look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Again, he's driving home that point. If you're just using me for other things, that doesn't save you. You can have all the food you need. You're still going to die. You still need to dress the issue underneath the deepest need. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's he's rocking along. All these people are there. He says these things. And then all of a sudden everybody goes, wait, what? What? The bread of life. They're like, yeah, give us that bread. Great. He's like, it's my flesh. They all kind of stop and go, huh? People start scratching their heads and like, what are you talking about? It says the dispute, the verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue. And all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, okay. Right? Suddenly the crowds that are so excited, that are overrunning, suddenly everybody goes, "Uh, what? And they all start to kind of go, what is he talking about? Did he just say eat his flesh? He says, this bread is my flesh. And they all go, what is he talking about? So he doubles down. And he goes, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you have no life. And he starts to push further. What in the world is Jesus doing? This is where context is important. This is where reading the whole of the Bible is important. You can pull that out, take a few verses and go, Jesus advocates cannibalism. I mean, is that not what it sounds like to the people standing there? That's what they're saying. He just said, eat my flesh. And suddenly everybody's scratching their heads and looking at the round, going, what is happening? So what is Jesus doing? I think one of the things he's doing is you've got a ton of people that are coming to Jesus now and they're starting to use him. It's the same thing we see around this time where he starts to switch of speaking in parables. He speaks in parables because the people that are coming to use him as a means to other ends, he's going to start to tell deeper meaning. But you've got to really want it. You've got to start to really dig and ask questions. And what Jesus says here is so shocking, kind of throws you back. What did he just say? If you're truly his disciple, you're going to go, what do you mean by that, Jesus? What are you talking about? And I think that's part of what he's doing is he's wanting them to lean in and ask the question, what do you mean eat your flesh and drink your blood? Are you serious? Are you saying that literally? Is that what you mean? But what happens is a lot of people just kind of look around and kind of scratch their heads and then they go, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me. Right. That's where we get to verse sixty six. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him or in verse sixty. It says when his disciples heard it, they said to this to him, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Right. Even the twelve, even the guys that are with him all the time are like, Jesus, what's going on here with this? This eat your flesh. And drink your blood. What are you saying? Now they do lean in and they are asking those questions. They are saying to him, they are seeking to go deeper with him. But what God is doing or what Jesus is doing right here in the middle of this is he's blowing up this idea that you're going to come to him and use them for something else. And he says, you come to me. Now, we know we've talked about this as we're reading through the Gospels. You have the original audience. You have when John writes it down about 50 years later. And then you have us today looking at all of it. What John knew that the original audience didn't know is he knew exactly what Jesus was doing when he talked about this. We know, I think, if you're here each week, what he's talking about when he talks about his, his flesh and his blood and feasting on him. We come to the table every single week and we talk about that. What Jesus has done for us, what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to be part of me and my father and have a relationship with you, it's going to be through my spilled blood and my broken body, my sacrifice for you. It's the only way that it ever brings all these things together. But in that moment, people were like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? In fact, the disciples say this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? They were so excited because they thought there's a revolution that's about to happen. They've got all these thousands of people coming, ready to, ready to make Jesus king. I often think of uh, Peter kind of as like Jesus' campaign manager. Like, we're going to get all this going, right? I can see, Je- You know how Peter kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, you'll never die, Lord, you know, that, that whole thing. He likes to do that. I kind of think of him coming to Jesus and going, hey, let's lay off of the whole eating your flesh thing. This will go better for us if we kind of lay off the cannibalism talk. Right. Because they're not understanding it. But what Jesus is doing is he loves the people. He loves all of them too much to allow them to use him for something that will never satisfy. And he's going to push and he's going to push harder so that they see the reality of who he is and what he's come to do. have not come to be used for other things. It's why I get so frustrated at the idea of the prosperity gospel. That if you just have enough faith and you just take Jesus and you just do these things, he'll give you all the things that you desire, cars and money. Those things will never satisfy. And that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. The good news is not that Jesus will give you a new car. The good news is that God has come down to bring us back into relationship with him. The only thing that will ever satisfy the deepest need of your heart. And so Jesus says, you don't use me. It's me. I'm the one that's come. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that will meet all your deepest needs. And that's exactly what he's saying in this whole thing. You know, I was thinking about that poor guy that was climbing the mountain. Going up thinking if I could just have perfection for a second. And here is God of the universe has come down that we can be made perfect by what he does for us. What he's desiring in that moment is I'm going to climb this and I'll be perfect for just a second. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give it to you. Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You'll never be able to find it in anything else but what he's done. And that's what he's saying over and over. And when you start to put it in the context of all of Scripture... And what he's doing and what he's calling us to, the fact that he's pushing so hard just magnifies how much he loves us. I'm not going to let you use me in these ways. I want you to see the only thing that will truly satisfy you, which is Jesus and what he's come to do that we can now be accepted when he talks about my body and my blood. He goes to the cross to take our sin and give us his perfect works. That you are now made perfect in his sight because of what he's done. And it's the only way we ever truly rest. The only way that we're fully known and fully loved that we can rest in every way. And that's exactly what he's pointing us to as he does that. And so Jesus is now going to continue to push this as we go forward. And it's going to start to divide the crowds. In fact, it's going to divide them so much that it's going to point him right towards the cross. He's going to set this path towards the cross. It's going to pick up pretty quickly from here out. It's kind of what we're going to do until Easter. We're going to lead right up to what Jesus meant to do. But it's also that our deepest need that we could be it could be met in Christ and what he's done for us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. I pray that you would reveal in our hearts to us, the, the areas where we're seeking to use you as a means to other things. How often uh, in our sinfulness that we will seek to do that without even knowing it. And we'll start to seek to use you as a means to an end. Lord, we do not want to use you as the means to an end. We thank you that you are the ends. That you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray that you would help us to see that more fully each and every day. Help us to rest in the good news of what you've done. Help us to to live in community together to continue to point one another to the truth that is all you and what you've done for us and nothing else. Help us to see that each day. Help us to speak the truth and love to one another when we're seeking other things. That we would continue to remind one another that you are the true bread of life that meets all of our needs. Uh, We thank you and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.